So can you can imagine a, a scenario where you have an adversary, you have someone that is opposing you. And if you've lived long enough, you know that that has occurred. Sometimes you have adversaries that are just the mystery of someone that doesn't like you because you breathe. And then you, and that's just the way it is, is a mystery. Then other times you will have adversaries that are a consequence of misunderstanding. So you're talking apples and oranges and there's a conflict there at some level. Uh, that conflict could be resolved if an opportunity allowed for it. Then you will have perpetual enemies that I probably could describe as eternal enemies, which is an element in our human experience that we don't always like to embrace. There's going to be somebody on the planet that never likes you. Um, and if you and I are not da- if you and I are not careful, we can engage in a quid quo of that as well. So the law tells us um, that we are to love our neighbor as ourself, which is a counterintuitive response to hate at the gospel level. You guys know that. When I'm talking about hate and love, I am in, entering into a very politically charged topic. You know that because we're Americans in the middle of a major transformation in our culture but not unlike it was in the first century when Jesus was teaching his disciples in the um, Sermon on the Mount to bless those that curse you, to pray for those that despitefully abuse and use you and malign you. Those are counterintuitive principles, are they not? They are not fundamental to our nature, which is self-preservation. And self-preservation would say an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, uh, even in the context of just justly defending ourselves, which I think is still a legitimate and biblical grounds for uh, the preservation of life. We should, in some cases, preserve. What the apostle is going to help us understand, however, is how to assess the mind of a servant of God or a servant of Christ who, who really gets why they are doing what they're doing. They really get their calling, and and I'm hoping that this will allow us to work it through. And I think what I did, I said, um, the question I want us to deal with in our Q&A is, what is the benefit of this prism, this prism, our perspective, this uh, modality of thinking that the Apostle Paul is going to talk about? So I'm presupposing I'll make sense to you by the time we get to the Q&A. Amen. So if our eyes and ears are open, I want us to consider verse one of 1 Corinthians chapter four, verse one. And we're going to just kind of begin to tear apart the text exegetically a little bit and then hopefully put it back together. Notice what the Apostle Paul says in verse one of chapter four. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. So the little word let there is the old Hebrew uh, marker for an imperative. It's an imperative. Whenever the word let is given, it is an imperative. Let there be light, right? And, And it was so. So whenever a let is used, it's really engaging you and me to actually embrace the statement with a sense of uh, seriousness and obedience. Let 
a man, so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. I'm going to get into that more. Moreover, in addition to that, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self, for I know nothing by myself. Yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. And then shall every man have praise of God. Verse six. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos, For your sake, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. Those verse seven, those seven verses are a block chain. Can you see that? And if I were asking you, what is the word that jumps out running through all seven of those verses? That would be a kind of thread linking every sentence. It would be the word judge, to judge. That's the word that's jumping out. What Paul wants us to talk about now is the issue of judging, the issue of judgment. Something we all know, something we all do, something we're all engaged in, sometimes good, sometimes bad, sometimes right, sometimes wrong. So what I want to help you see with the apostles entering into the subject matter is this intentional vulnerability to want to draw closer to the Corinthians and the Corinthians to draw closer to him around the subject of how they view the apostle over against these other imposters who have come in, which we know is the subject matter and have highly influenced the Corinthians. These other imposters have come in and they have uh, they have pejorned the apostle Paul. They have, they have ridiculed him. They have mocked him. They have, they have uh, scorned him. They have uh, accused him of being a, a fraud and someone who is really not capable or really not competent or really not as authoritative or as influential as they are. You guys get that underlying tone because I've shared that with you from the first chapter. So just imagine again, You have someone who is going about using every form of media that they possibly could to tear you down. I want to make application as we go. So just imagine you yourself. um, Let's say you're in a position of some kind of official uh, relationship with a group of people. Let's say you're a teacher or a boss on the job, some supervisor. And in this society that you're working with, Uh, Those people know you, but they may not know you well enough to know whether or not when somebody else says something about you, that what they're saying about you is not true. Those people know you, but they may not know you well enough to know how to guard their openness to accusations and ridicule and ad hominem from other people about you. You see, this is a common scenario, isn't it? 
Right. That's why I want to anchor it in something very practical before we draw out the clear theological implications. I want you to understand that in any community where there are leaders in that community, you could be one, as I'm I'm stating that that leadership, that that person that's in a position of influence is always going to have to manage how people view them. All right. So another way for us to look at this as I drill into it, this would be called social intelligence. Social intelligence is how you understand your place in a community and how you perceive yourself and how you perceive them perceiving you. Very important. Children go through this from the moment that they start interacting with other kids, other peers and adults as well. Social intelligence is about how well we understand ourselves and how well we understand others understanding us. Did that come home? Very important here because in our religious communities, we're not always as sensitive as we could be and we're not always as clear. I'm doing this as an appeal to you to think about how much labor the Apostle Paul puts into three epistles, two of which we have, First and Second Corinthians is another one, we don't have it, for him to try to explain to this church who he is for them. He's really stretching it out. And, and what's, what I love about verse one is verse one is giving us a little clue about what Paul wants you and I to do in relationship to him. Well, not you and I, but the church at Corinth. Corinth. He wants them to assess. He wants them to calculate. He wants them to judge. And he wants them to draw a conclusion. All of that is wrapped up in the little word account. Notice what he says in verse one in the opening statement. Verse one of 1 Corinthians 4. Let a man so what? Account of us. That's an accounting term, okay? That is a idea of taking all the data, laying out the data in order, prioritizing the data. And once you prioritize that data, you extract from that data an assessment, an analysis, and a conclusion about that person. I mean, you and I have been dealing with this for the last three years, have we not, around what's been going on in our world. So I I want you to be thinking about this. Accounting terms are about getting an accurate assessment about a thing. It's the same thing as judging. So what Paul is saying is, let a man account of us, make your judgment about us, and we're going to help you make that judgment. Because what he's going to do is what we call in theology an exegetical. His proposition is, we want you to analyze, critique, we want you to assess and draw conclusions about who we are. And we're going to help you draw these conclusions because we're going to give you information about us which you guys already know that Paul has already been doing that from chapter one, has he not? Has he not from chapter one been making a distinction between who he is versus who they are? Who the Lord Jesus is versus who they are? What the gospel is versus what the gospel is not. And he's been categorizing this group of people as being in danger of coming to naught because God always frustrates the wicked. And by the time we get to chapter three, and we're going to be digging back there in a moment, the Apostle Paul is warning the church at Corinth, don't misrepresent or misassess who we are. So under point number one, look at your outline. 
we are servants of Christ and supporters of your what? Faith. Right. So when Paul says, here's what I want you to begin the process of assessing us and, and draw this conclusion, what we are. And he what I love about that little we, it's both inclusive and exclusive. It's not what you are. It's not what they are. It's what what? We are. So on my board, I have strategically set up the first subject of our text as point number one. You guys see that here? So the first subject of our text is the we factor. The second subject of our text is going to be the you factor. Y'all keeping up with me? And then the third subject of our our text is going to be the him factor or the Christ factor that follows, right? Also, I have it tiered up for a purpose. I have it matriculating up from the we are being lowest, the you are being second, and the Christ is being at the highest level of the pinnacle. You guys see that? That is a hierarchical assessment of the triad of the discourse that's in front of him. So I wanted you to see that diagram. This is a half diagram. It could come down on this side as well as Christ at the top. And then the people of God, I can do that at the second tier. And then the apostles at the what? Bottom tier. Does that follow? You could see that as a keyism if we wanted to. Now, Paul is doing something here in this hierarchical uh, grid in his discourse that constitutes the title of our study. Look at what the title of our study is. The title of our study is The Humble Servants of Christ. Humility. Does that make sense? Humility before what? Honor. Is it clear? Good. I just wanted you to capture that because sometimes when we're engaging in proposition, if you aren't able to structure it yourself, things can kind of be loose and vague. What Paul is opening up with is saying, this is how we want you to view us. And I'm going to explain. This is what Paul is saying. I'm going to explain why we want you to account of us in point number one as servants of who? Christ. And therefore, supporters of your what? All right, this is important. So the first thing he wants the church of Corinth to be reminded of is that he and Apollos, which remember Paul said that back in chapter three, who is Paul and who is Apollos? But servants by whom you believe, even as the Lord gave to every man. That's back in chapter three, right? So this is what I mean. He always is reaching back. Now, think about that proposition as we go on. Think about you trying to persuade someone of what you constitute as your identity, particularly in relationship to people. And you go, hey, wait a minute. First thing I want you to get is that I am a servant of Christ. That's the first thing I want you to get. Whatever else you say about me, this is what I want you to get first. I am a servant of Christ. Did it come home? This is going to be important. This is going to be important. So what he says is whatever your assessment is, whatever you want to say about me, whatever you want to say about me and Apollos, please know this. We are servants of Christ. Now what that means is 
<coughs> excuse me, we are not your servants. What that also means is we're not in this business for ourselves. What this also means is we're under obligation as servants of someone higher than ourselves, higher than you, higher than the world. Now you are obligated to assess us more correctly. Does that come home? Because, look, you could, you could know someone in a certain kind of way, but not really know everything about them and not know, know the important things about them, which really constitutes the why of who they are. Let's say you know a few things about a dude or a person, but you don't know everything about that person. And you're going to assume that you can go around telling people who they are. How arrogant. In fact, that would be the opposite of humility, wouldn't it? It would be proud presumption and assumption that you know something that you really don't know. All right, so I'm driving at home because you know how I do. I got to get your minds all stirred up or else you can't uh, appreciate the way Paul is laying this out. Paul is saying, whatever you want to conclude about me and all of the gossip and all of the hearsay and all of the ridicule and all of the, uh, you know, huckamaboo going on in the church from all of these other cats, I am and and Apollos is a servant of Christ. That's the first thing. And in addition to that, we are servants of Christ for the advancement of your faith. That's good. Whether you know it or not, that's good. I want to build on that, drilling down into what that means. I want to build on that, drilling down into what that means. So under point number one, there is a subtitle or sub point. Do you guys see it? What does it say? Unseen laborers. I want to drill that home. And that unseen laborer is again for your advancement in Christ. Right. Thank you, Paul, because you're helping us understand how important it is for me and us to understand who we are and how we are to impact others. So now notice what he said. We want you to account of us as servants of Christ. And therefore, we are here for the support of your faith. Now, what the people of God get to do now is assess that proposition, don't they? They get to ask the question, do I know what it means for Paul to be a servant of Christ? Secondly, If, in fact, I do get that, understand that what it means for Paul to be a a servant of Christ is his and Apollos. I need to keep that in mind as well. Is his servitude to Christ. This is really important. Is it beneficial to me? Is that good? Is it beneficial to me? Because notice what he says. We are servants of Christ and therefore are supporters or advancers of your what? Faith. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Let a man so account of us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Okay. They are people who are held in trust with the gospel. 
They are held in trust with the word of God. They are held in trust with the development and manifestation of the kingdom. Ah, that's important, is that not? Not only are they servants of Christ, but they are stewards of the mysteries of God. We can well reflect with this question and response. Then who am I in relationship to them? Who am I in relationship to Paul? And how am I to interact with Paul, who is a servant of Christ? And how am I to understand him, therefore, being a supporter of my faith? See what I'm doing? Do you see what I'm doing? I'm not only asserting that it's important for me to know who Paul is in relationship to his master, but how that impacts my life. Because how incongruent would it be if the Apostle Paul is who he says he is? And because of who he is, he really is impacting their faith at the level of advancing it. And yet they want to question him. They want to challenge him. They want to test him or they want to reject him. They want to abandon him. Who are they abandoning? First, the servant of Christ. Secondly, a servant of Christ that specifically made or positioned or appointed for the advancement of your what? Faith. You got it? I could say that if I wanted to make this a little bit more intimate, that what the Apostle Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, as you would see in 2 Corinthians, maybe in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I think it is here, that uh, I'm actually the one that God used to bring you into the reality of the kingdom. I'm actually the one that God is using to keep you rooted and grounded in the kingdom. I'm actually the one that God has endorsed and affirmed and has used to bring you into the reality of salvation. That ought to matter, shouldn't it? See what I'm getting at now? You see how, why I'm taking my time to help you understand that assessment is really critical here. We're getting ready to go into the rabbit hole. But what I want you to think about is, does Paul, as the founder of the churches in Corinth and Ai, uh, uh, Achaia, does he have a right to call them on a proper assessment of who he is? Does he have a right to tell them, make sure you don't misrepresent me, not only to people around you, but to yourself? See what I'm getting at? All right. So I'm going to stay here just a little bit longer because I just want to make sure we get it. When Paul says we are servants of Christ and supporters of your faith, he is saying what he says in 1 Corinthians 4. I am your spiritual father. You got a lot of teachers. I am the one that God used to beget you by the gospel. You are only born again because of the co-labor of me and God and you being his cultivated field. Now, that's a powerful Position the whole to say, I'm the one God used to save you. Now, that's powerful. I mean, I, I would not make those kind of claims as an individual real, real quickly. I really would not. I really would not. Even though I'm in a position of a pastor and I've seen conversions many, many times, it is a very precarious uh, assumption or assertion to go, God uses me to save people. But he does. But he does. He does. He uses me to save people. So I'm letting you know that 
while Paul is asserting a fact, he is definitely not asserting a fact for his own insecurity. He's doing it to keep the table clear in his relationship between them and him because he knows that somewhere down the line they could be led astray by someone that does not meet the qualifications that he does. And would that be, would it be okay to say, saints, now that you guys are starting to be stirred up with me, would not be paternal and maternal? Would not be a maternal uh, characteristic? Would not be a paternal characteristic? Wouldn't a parent have a right to tell their child, you don't get to act like I'm not your father or I'm not your mother because nobody else is taking care of you. Am I driving it home? Right, because it's, I just want you to capture it before we drill further down because I get Paul. I really get Paul. He's ticked off. I'm not going to use a bad word with these dudes running in here into the church acting like they're better than him. He will deal with them. You know that. He says, when I come, I will find out whether or not they have authority. They're already getting ready to come in and clean house like a dad does. Like, you know, I grew up in the day when when mom said, no, just wait till your daddy get home. It was all kind of problems going on at that point. that's That's a problem. Just somewhere you cross the line of no return. Now you got to deal with the coming of dad. And that's what our final uh, proposition is in verse five, right? Judge nothing before the time, because when the Lord comes, he will bring and manifest everything as it ought to be. Y'all got that? That's what the apostle is doing. I love this. I love this. So under point number one, we are servants of Christ and supporters of your faith. What do I mean by unseen labors of your advancement in Christ? Well, the first thing I want you to understand is they are benefiting from Paul's labors. But Paul is using a term here where the word servant has been used three times. The first time this word servant is used is back in chapter three. And I want you to see it over in chapter three. Verse five, who then is Paul and who then is Apollos? This is him. This is the we factor. But what? Ministers by whom you believe. See that word minister? That's that's our word servant, too. Now, I want to give you that particular term in the Greek. I want you to capture that term in the Greek. This is the Greek word diaconate. OK, diaconus, from which we get our term what? Deacon. I got that. That's the first term he uses. So now let me build on my argument that Paul is not operating out of a sort of sociopathic megalomaniac ego. When he says that him and Apollos are ministers, he's saying we're deacons. We're deacons. We're not archbishops. (laughs) We're not popes. We're not patriarchs. We're deacons. That's what I meant by humility. Did you get that? That's what I meant by humility. He's using the Greek term diakonos, and the term diakonos is a term that was used of Jesus in Matthew chapter 20, where it says Jesus came not to be ministered to, but to minister and give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus is a deacon. And this this is where we all should be. We should all understand what it means to be a deacon. 
Because what is a deacon? Diaconus is a, there are two words here, diakonis, diakonis in this Greek term for, for uh, deacon. And it means to kick up the dust and your obedience to serve. It is a verb that means to kick up the dust in your obedience to serve. In other words, a true deacon or minister is one who is absolutely enthusiastic about his or her assignment. May that come home. You are not a deacon if you are hesitating in executing your assignment. You are some kind of Pollyanna that wants a position of authority and the idea that someone would ask you to do something like pick up paper off the ground or wipe down cabinets or go pick up my constituent from the train station, whatever the case may be. For you to hesitate about doing it means you don't have a deacon's mind. And yet my master was told by the father, go get Jesse out of hell. And the master rushed to do it. Did that make some sense? He rushed to do it. And when you look at the totality of his life, and this is what we're going to be dealing with in our men's meeting tomorrow, when we deal with biblical masculinity from the standpoint of Christ, I'm going to be talking to our men about what it means to be masculine from a servant standpoint. Because you got a lot of men talking masculinity, but it's nothing but kind of navel gazing and psychological masturbation. Okay. Right. What it is, is a kind of uh, toxic energy that does not correspond to life. It's self-gratification. Did you get what I just stated? It really is true. That person is far from masculine who is so deep inside his head that everybody is to serve him. Far from masculine. And he does not model our master. <clears throat> and so when I use this first term, diaconus or deacon, this is the first, symbol, uh, first uh, emblem of Paul saying, we know our position. We know that we're here to serve. That's beautiful, isn't it? All right, that's the first time that it's used. The next time that this term is used in our text is where we are in our verse one of our text. And that's going to be the Greek word huperates. Huper or hupo means under. Rates is a Greek verb that means to roll. I've talked to us about this before. This is called the metaphor of a ship. And as it were in the old days of the Vikings in the first century, ships were driven by multiple men who rowed with the oars. You guys remember that? <clears throat> Stay with me. I'm getting ready to teach you. The ship, big vessels, could not get out to sea without 50, 60 to 100 men rowing the ship. You got that? They are not on the top deck where they can be seen. They are on the third row underneath the goods where they are not seen. And they are rowing because the boat will not get down the river without that energy. And everybody else that's on the boat enjoying the journey 
are a direct beneficiary of the men in the third row, the third galley rowers who are unseen laborers for your good. You see what I mean by unseen laborers now? That's literally the term. That's literally the term. In the New Testament is used of every position that is seen in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John around being an officer or being a servant or being an official. An officer, servant, and official is someone who is not heard but seen in the sense that there are instructions given to him and he simply executes his duty. Like the officials that came to take Jesus. The high priest sent officials to get Jesus. You don't hear from them. They're just doing what they're called to do. In the gospel of Luke, Christ's first ministry in Luke chapter four, where he comes back to Galilee, back to Nazareth, and he's preaching from the uh, book of Kings and the book of Isaiah. And the text says, and the minister handed Jesus the scriptures. So in the synagogues, the minister is the one that sets up what is called the, the order of service, cleans up the place, organizes the place, takes a copy of the scroll of scripture and puts it on the mantle. He's not necessarily the one communicating. If somebody else has been assigned the task of talking about the text, they stand up and the text tells us that the minister gives him the scriptures. Did that make some sense? He opens his scripture and he gives it to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He preaches from the scriptures. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me and he has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, right? To set the captives free. Do you remember that? Do I need to go to the text or do you remember that? And if you look at the movement of that event, it's a powerful movement. Go there with me. I have you for a little while. I just want you to see it. This is going to be Luke's gospel, chapter four. I want you to capture what it means to be a servant unseen, in some cases heard and not seen, in other cases seen and not heard. This is Luke's gospel, chapter four. I'm over at verse, um, verse 14. Are you there? And Jesus returned in the power of the spirit into Galilee and there went out fame of him through all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues being glorified of all. See verse 15. It would indicate in verse 15 that once Jesus was anointed, now you know, Jesus has just gotten out out of the water. He's just done his 40 days. Now he's preaching and teaching. Right. And so we know he has the third person. This is going to be what we talk about on Sunday when we do our men's baptism. Okay. You know he has a third person. So he is now empowered to preach. The third person is the element, that third rail necessary to preach accurately, to preach effectually, and to preach consistently. To preach accurately, to preach effectively, and to preach what? Consistently. In other words, every servant has a, an assignment with a duration. With a time, with a time expiration date on it, we all do. Whether you're a parent or a, 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 you know an educator or whatever your case is, and if you are walking with God, you have the Spirit of God. Particularly if you're operating out of a gift, I'm going to just drill down in that to keep you while we're going. Every one of us has a calling, and when we are operating out of that calling by the Spirit of God, God will allow us to finish our assignment. 
He will also allow us to do our assignment well. He will grace us to do it well. And so our assignment will always benefit others. You don't have a gift that God won't bless others through when he gave you that gift. This is important to get. You can't say you've received a gift from God and you are operating in that gift and God is not doing three things with that gift, helping you to operate out of it properly, helping you to operate out of it effectively. This is why I told you earlier when Paul says, account of us as the servants of Christ and helpers of your faith. So whenever you are applying your gift in any area, you're going to be a blessing to people. And God will grace you to finish your assignment. This is what we're getting ready to learn when when Paul tells us in verse five, judge nothing until the Lord comes, because when the Lord comes, he's giving rewards to everyone according as their works shall be. So what you and I must always know is, what am I doing daily? What am I engaging in? How, How is my life mattering for Christ? Have I discovered my calling? Have I discovered my gifts? Are they operating in my life? Are they accurately operating? Are they truly impactful? Is God sustaining me in that? Or have I broken protocol and fellowship with God so that my gifts are diminishing? Are dull are useless? Are those good questions? They really are. But I want to stay back with the apostle now so that you can understand what I mean in that, in that context. So notice what the text says. I'm, I'm back in, in Luke's gospel, please. In Luke's gospel, when it says in Jesus return in the power of the spirit, he taught in their synagogues being glorified of all. You guys see that? That's a beautiful thing. What that means is he was a unique teacher when he went into the synagogues, unlike the common teachers of their day. Because the text says people were marveling at what he taught. Okay, we don't have to go there, but the language is clear in Luke's gospel. He didn't teach like the scribes or the Pharisees. He taught with authority and with power. And on this day, it's going to be exponential manifestation, as you know, because a healing is going to take place. Then they're going to try to kill him. But my point is, is that Jesus is doing what he's doing because he's anointed to do it. He's operating out of his gift. It's operating accurately. It's operating effectually. And it will go all the way to his telos. Remember, I told you telos means his finish. When he hangs on the cross and yields up his spirit, it will be only after he says to telestai. That means just like the Apostle Paul, that's in our text too. When Paul finished his work, he says, now I'm ready to be offered up. And I've told you this many times. You and I have an assignment where God's witness. And when our job is done, God will call us home. When our job is done, he will call us home. So this is what Christ is doing here. Look at what it goes on to say. Notice what it says in verse 16. So he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, there it is, I love this. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to do what? Right. Jesus loved reading the scriptures. That was his custom. He would go into the synagogues and he would stand up to read. He'd be the one that said, I'll read that. In other words, he, here he is, the author of scripture. 
taking the very scriptures that he breathed out into the hearts and minds of the prophets and he's reading it back to the people. Let me ask you, are those church services blessed where Jesus shows up and reads the scripture? This is really important and I'm taking my time because this is important for us to get. Because this is about judgment, assessment, analysis, calculating, judging, properly judging what you are about, where you are, what's going on, what's taking place. That's what Paul wants us to do. So Jesus has a pattern, doesn't he? He loves church. He's not hitting and missing. He only has three and a half years. He knows his window, doesn't he? He's not going to be missing a bunch of Sabbath days, is he? More than that. Every time he occupies a synagogue, the people are blessed for Jesus to show up. We would presuppose that that is the spiritual state of our fellowship, that when we gather together, we gather in the name of the Lord Jesus by the spirit of our God. And we presuppose Christ is among us. If, in fact, he is among us, a, a number of the benefits of his presence should be affirmed among us. Should they not? Or we're just engaging in empty social behavior. If this is empty social behavior, we cannot identify the marks of the presence of Christ. Okay, so I want to I keep going because here's what happens. Notice what it says. He stood up to read verse 17. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet what? And when he had opened the book, you see that line? This is one of the principles of what we call expository teaching, how to properly interpret scripture, because the scriptures have to be opened up to us. And when he had opened the book, he found the place that was written, verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captive and the recovering of the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those that are bruised. This is a central messianic prophecy coming out of Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. Is that right? You guys know that. We know our Bibles enough to know this. This is exclusively a prophecy concerning Jesus, is it not? So think about this. Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's called the spirit of Christ who was in the prophets who wrote these things down on, on, on papyrus, right? Our sheepskin. And now he's reading the very scriptures that he breathed through them to write down about him. The people in the synagogues are having a double blessing at this time. The codification of the prophecy and the person of whom the prophecy is about expounding the prophecy. When I say codification, I'm talking about your Bible. When I'm saying the person of whom the Bible is talking about, I'm talking about Jesus. And I'm saying Jesus here is occupying the role of the third person by echoing the scriptures into clarity. Does that make some sense? Right. And that should be what happens when, when we gather together in an illuminated context where the Spirit of God opens the Scriptures to us, or else we are wasting our time. That makes sense, right? Right. Now, one more verse I want you to capture before I go back. I love this because we're all excited about Jesus being present. We're excited about him opening the Scriptures. But none of this would have happened. 
if there wasn't a servant, a hooperades, sweeping, cleaning, organizing the house, setting out the scriptures so they could be ready for Jesus when he came. None of this would happen if we didn't have the lower galley roars. None of this would happen and none of us would be advancing in our faith without those quiet, unseen servants doing the work of preparing, organizing, structuring, and setting the table for men and women to come and hear the word of God preached. Did that come home? Because people totally miss all that. They totally miss all that. All they know is the top level of the deck where they get on the boat and they get to eat all of the, the, the you know, food and enjoy the journey particularly if it's a sunny day, and do not realize somebody on the third level is rowing to get that boat of faith down the river. And in this context, he's called a hooperades. Verse 19. I'm sorry. To preach the acceptable year of the Lord, that's Isaiah. And he did what? His sermon was done. And he gave it again to the what? That's our hooperades. Now, we ought to be thanking God for the minister, shouldn't we? Because the minister is the one that had the scriptures ready. And the minister is the one that gave the scriptures to Jesus. And the minister is the one now that after Jesus finishes reading scripture, takes the scriptures and put them back in their proper place. Thank God for the minister. Did that make some sense? Right. So in a larger, more complex vision for you, What you and I want to surmise as God would grace us is that all of us would simply be the Hooperades. All of us would simply be the one that positions the scripture to give it to Jesus so that Jesus can open the scriptures and teach the people. And when Jesus is done teaching the people, give the scriptures back to us so we can put it away. Did that come home? Right. It's not so much about me or whoever else is handling the scriptures, but that the scriptures be given to Christ so that Christ can open the scriptures. So once he's done, he'll give the scriptures back to you and everyone will know that Christ was present. Because if you read what happens after that, they were utterly amazed. And this was what was happening from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue with Jesus throughout. And, and, and the key to the execution of that event is the hooperades. Did that make some sense? The minister. So you love Jesus, hang out with Jesus, kiss Jesus, tell him a great sermon, and go shake the hand of the minister and say, I thank you for being there. Because that's all Paul is saying that he is, is a lore galley rower. Jesus is the one that's the big deal here in our account. All right, let's go back to our text since that came home. Got a little bit more to go and we'll get into our Q&A. I want to now build much more quickly to drive home some extremely important points. We are servants of Christ and supporters of your faith, unseen laborers of your advancement in Christ. Secondly, our standard is faithfulness to him. Do you see that? Our standard is faithfulness to him. Now, again, remember what Paul is doing. Paul is explaining to the church at Corinth why he is there. Why he is there. Look at the proposition. I'm I'm back at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, if you don't mind. 
Now, notice what the text says, and we're going to work it through. Moreover, it is what? Required in stewards that a man be found what? Now, this is really important. The statement is important. So what Paul has already stated is who he was and and what their impact is on the community. And then he says, and this I want you to know. It's absolutely essential that the servant is found faithful. So not only does Paul let them know that he has a job, an assignment, a role in relationship with Jesus, but he has an obligation to do what? To be found. All right. Now, now we're getting ready to drill down a little bit deeper. Getting ready to drill down a little bit deeper because now you've gotten an assessment of who we are. That's the first level, who we are. I haven't even gotten to who you are yet. We're getting there. So see what Paul is doing is laying on the table, not only his calling and ministry, but his obligation to do it faithfully. He's showing the Corinthians how broadly he understands his role of making sure he executes his job, not before them, but before him. The expression is extremely important. Moreover, it is required. See that that statement required? It is required, required, required of servants to be found stewards that a man be found faithful. Under point number two, three sub points really quickly. We are whose servants? His. His. Now, I want to show you how the apostle is laying this out again over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8 through 12. Uh, verse 8, rather, 1 Corinthians 3, 8. Notice what it says. Now, he that planteth and he that watereth are what? One. Now, he's talking about him and Apollos, right? And every man shall receive his own what? According to his what? All right. Arrest, arrest yourself with that. This is extremely important. Extremely important because we were in Romans 14 several months ago in our earlier series as we were dealing with how to interact with believers, common believers around different uh, sort of picadillos and different preferences, different levels of growth and maturity, different freedoms, different responsibilities. Remember Romans 14, one tells us to receive one another without doubtful disputation. Romans 14, one, please keep up with me on that. I want you guys to see this because this now is about making sure you and I understand that we are not to inadvertently take the place of Jesus as judge of the other Christian. We are not to inadvertently move into a position of occupying the seat of thinking we know. I'm going to help you drill down into it. I'm going to help you drill down into that today so you can see it. I I want us to get it. So notice what it says in verse 1. Him that is weak in the faith do what? Receive. Receive. Well, how come? Well, he's in the faith. Well, pastor, he's weak. So what? You are too. Some days you're really weak. Some days your weakness is so bad it don't even look like you're in the faith. So what? Secondly, who's the one that says receive him? Christ does. 
See, this is what I was dealing with with our ladies last year around what is called integrated thinking. You guys remember that versus oppositional thinking, this attitude that we can just be at odds with people all the time. And particularly in the sisterhood, you can't do that. And men can't do it either. But sisters really have a bad attitude around that. But men do, too. It's just different. It's just different with that. Right. And this is where I told you to integrate Mary and Martha and don't pit them against each other. Because there's a time to sit and there's a time to serve and both of them need to be working together. That makes sense, right? So what Paul says here, when you when you find a weak brother, don't look at him as an opportunity to chop him up into 20 pieces because you see weakness. No, you receive him. Literally in the Greek, parallel means to receive him with welcome arms. Why? Jesus says, if you receive him, you've received me. And if you've received me, you've received the one that sent me. That would radically change the way we think about how we judge people in the community. Keeping up with me? Right. And it's not saying don't assess, don't evaluate. Remember, I told you the first thing Paul said was what? Assess, calculate, judge and draw conclusions. Right. Account. Do the accounting. We want you to look. We want you to know. We want you to conclude. So am I now uh, presenting to you attention? Yes. I'm presenting to you attention on purpose. I'm saying there is a judgment that you don't get to do while you are also called to make assessments. Now come home. All right. So if you're going to survive the 21st century here in America with all of the unreal stuff going on, you better be able to hold two things at one time in your hands. That's why God gives you two hands. You better be able to hold them in. You better hold paradoxes. You better hold tensions. You better hold mysteries. You better hold dichotomies. It's important to be able to have both ends. Right. Because there's a time sometimes when we're embracing and then there's a time not to embrace. And sometimes you are embracing and not embracing at the same time. Right. Very good. Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to what? Not for the purpose of tearing down their conscience and making them feel like they don't have access to the kingdom. Right. Very good. Very good. Very good. Remember, he is Christ's servant. This here can be more fully seen in Romans 14, 7. Look at it. Romans 14, 7. <clears throat> I'm already treating that. For none of us, what? Live to himself and no man dies to himself. Verse 8. Just going to walk through a few. For whether we live, we live where? Unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Now, we can do two things with that set of propositions. We can look at it from the standpoint of the voice of the apostle. Because what Paul is saying is we are the Lord's. Me and Apollos are the Lord's. So I don't care what you say. I'm the Lord's. I live and I die before him. But the church can also say that back to the apostles. We are the Lord's. We live and die before the Lord. In other words, even the apostles don't get to play papacy over the people of God. See, on the one hand, while they have a role of assessing, calculating, judging, uh, and drawing conclusions in relationship to being overseers, episcopates of the people of God, they cannot occupy the position of Christ as if their judgment is impeccable. Did that come home? We're getting ready to go there. That's what this is all about. Because there are a group of men 
probably women too, prophetesses in the church at Corinth that wants to completely condemn Paul and have everybody think that he is not a legitimate apostle. That's what I'm saying. The premise of Paul's labors right now is to help the church at Corinth not make that stupid mistake of listening to false teachers and false prophets to the point where they utterly malign and reject Paul because that's what they are trying to do. Did that come home? All right, very good, very good. So uh, one more verse, look at verse nine. I think I might want to go through 11 as well. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Great, isn't it? Verse 10, but, but why are you judging your brother? Or why do you set at not your brother? Here it is. This is where our final verse is going to go. We won't be able to unpack it fully today. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Pastor Jesse, of Elder Angelo, of Elder Al. You see how ludicrous that is? And yet, do you see that history is sweeping us all into one Coram Dale? Do you see that? There is one Coram Dale, one forum of standing before God for all of us individually and collectively. That has to be kept in mind. Go back to our text. I want to work a little bit more before I open the floor to the question. Remember, the question is, what is the benefit of this prism for you? This kind of rationale, this kind of thinking. What, is the, what are the benefits are you getting out of this study in relationship to yourself? Even if it's simply a matter of a proper, more full, fuller appreciation of Paul's labor. But it should have personal application as well. Would you agree with that? All right. So now notice what we have under point number two. Our standard is faithfulness to him. We are his servants, as Paul has just stated, to be sought out by him. See sub point B to be what sought out by him. I like that statement because what that statement basically says in over in verse two is moreover, it is required of stewards that a man be what found found. That, this is the subtlety of language. What do you mean found? Sought out. What do you mean found? Brought before the seat of analysis. What do you mean found? Exposed for the totality of the duration of your ministry. What do you mean found? Having everything that you've done brought to the forefront so that the owner of the business can evaluate what you've done. That's what we mean by found. It is required of uh, uh, stewards to be found what? Faithful. Faithfulness is an assessment. It's an evaluation. It's a judgment that comes at a period of time when the owner goes through the process of finding out how you've been doing. Are you keeping up with me now? See, and notice what Paul is doing. Paul is saying, this is how I live. I live fully aware that Christ is going to find me out. Did it come home? I live fully aware that my master, for whom I live and die, is going to search me out. See it? There's a day coming when it's all going to be brought to light. I love what Paul is saying. So what Paul is saying is, if you get the fact that we're servants, if we're diakonosis, if we're hooperades, please understand, you may try to find me out, but you're finding me out is not finding me out. 
All right, I want to go to work on that a little bit because it's important to get. So under point number two, I did three things, which is why I have here at the lower number one tier, we are, then I have you are, then I have Christ is. Did that make sense? I, I, I matriculate up. Look at it in your outline. Point number two, we are his servants. We're on the lower rung to be sought out by him. He's on the highest rung, is he not? And then notice the third sub point. And then we are your servants for what? Do you see that? Right. Paul says this to the same church over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Would you pull that up? Just want you to capture this. We are in humility, the servants of Christ. And you are those for whom our labors benefit you. But Christ is the one that's head over over all of that. Now, notice what he says here. Then you, you and I can think this through a little bit. For we preach what? Not ourselves. Is that what Paul is explaining in 1 Corinthians 4? Of course. We preach not ourselves. Because if he was preaching himself, it would be all about him, all about his position, all about his apostleship. He's not even using the word apostle. Remember what we learned is diakonos and then huperates. And the next word we're going to be dealing with is the word servant in our text. It's called a slave, a doulos. There are three terms that Paul is using. One is a diaconat, running as soon as the Lord says go. The other one is a hooperates, rowing without caring about being seen. And the third one is a doulos. I'm purchased by Christ. He can do with me what he wants. Did it come home? All right, good. Very good, because... When you have that sense of um, obligation to your master, it liberates you. Because this is a text that we're getting ready to deal with. That's, the, that's our third point that, that we're getting ready to deal with. So I'm glad we captured that. Notice what he says. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the what? I love it. And ourselves, your why? So we know what our role is among you. We're here to serve you. We're here to serve you for Jesus' sake. Beautiful, isn't it? That's the term doulos. Point number three, because there is a what? Set day of judgment, not by men. Did that come home? There's a set day of judgment, not by men. Go back to our text. I'm going to wind it up here. We can have some conversation around this. We can drill down, spread it out, however way you want to. I want you to be thinking about Proper assessment, proper analysis, proper judgment, understanding how to draw the lines and draw the limit, knowing your environment, knowing your domain, knowing your responsibility, knowing the responsibility of of others in relationship to you. And these principles apply across every aspect of our life. So we read in verse three, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you. Whoa. See, so now Paul has moved over to the you are, right? You are trying to be our what? Judge. Yes. Paul has a huge awareness that the Corinthians have been distracted. They've been distracted from Christ to Paul through the gossip and distorted rhetoric of the false teachers. Did that come home? 
Right. So this is this is how you know you're bit by the venom of gossip. When you're bit by the venom of gossip, you lose sight of the most important things and you get locked in on someone or something in such a myopic way that you lose the bigger picture. You know what I'm talking about. This is what's happening with the church at Corinth. Listen, Paul wrote three letters to him. He know he he's he's intervening to stop the chaos that's developing. Remember, the study is order out of what? Chaos. He's trying to restore order before they invert the system, destroy God, destroy Christ, destroy Paul, destroy male, destroy female and such destroy the church. Y'all got what I'm talking about, because that's the world I live in right now. The world I live in right now is anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-patriarchal, anti-biblical family, anti-biblical worldview. See what I'm getting at? Very important that, that the Apostle Paul does this. So under point number three, I want to drill down into the propositions. I'll stop in about 10 minutes. We'll have a conversation. Subpoint uh, B, your judgment is of micro what? I love this. Now look at the verse again, because it's in the grammar. Okay, elecristo. But with me, it is a very small thing. <laughs> That's our word, elecristo. The root word means micro. When I think about you judging me, it shrinks down to a peanut. Now this is important. Because this is a tension that Paul is holding between loving them and understanding that they don't have the capacity or apparatus to make a final conclusion about him. See what I'm talking about? All right, so I want you to get it. Notice what he says. And, and what I love about this is, this is kind of a, 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 a little bit of a whipping that he's doing on the church. Rhetorical whooping. Your judgment about me is of little significance. In other words, if you're trying to get in my head, let me help you now. It's not working. Because you know a lot about the rhetorical battles and the propositional battles and the, the party spirit battles are about getting in people's heads. When you and I go carnal, talk is about getting in people's heads. That's how the devil works. The goal is to make the person that you don't like or have an art with feel bad. And here's what Paul is saying. Nah, it ain't working. I am so preoccupied, says Paul, with the one for whom I will be found out. That your assessment of me has shrunk down to a pistachio. Did that, did that make some sense? A small little peanut pecan. What's even smaller? Sunflower seed. <laughs> now think sesame seed, right? So, and, and, and I want you to capture that because I'm showing you, I'm showing you a principle of liberty here. Are you capturing it? There's a principle of liberty here. You have to get this. This is a principle of liberty. When you properly understand the hierarchy, there's a principle of liberty. It's a beautiful thing when you know you have a master who is impeccably sufficient to be able to manage you. 
in a way in which it makes you unassailable ultimately to anyone else. Did that come home? That's an amazing thing. How blessed a servant of God you must be. Here's what he says. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Now we're getting ready to jump into some deep water. This is what Paul has broadened this whole subject matter out is across the totality of his apostolic ministry, even to this hour. This is what he just did. He says, I'm not influenced to any significant degree about the way you think about me. And I'm not concerned about what the folks 2000 years from now in Hayward are thinking about me. Or another 2000 years, should the Lord tarry anywhere on the planet of what people are going to think about me? Because I know that I'm being used by God to do what I do. I'm one of the pillars of the church and my apostolic ministry will stand because God is able to cause me to stand. Remember Romans 14, we stand or fall before the Lord. The Lord is able to cause him to what? Stand. And has Paul stood? Do you understand how much evil had come after the apostle Paul? It was relentless. And yet he's standing, isn't he? He's standing today. Is he not standing today? All of his adversaries have come to naught, have they not? Have they not blown in the wind like chaff? And Paul still stands because the Lord is able to make you stand. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? All right, good. So give me a few more minutes. And notice what he says, because I want to drill down into this and see if you have the blessing of proper self-assessment as well. Here it is. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self. Whoa, we got to go to work on that. Right, because I, I see in this proposition several things. The first is his not judging himself cannot be an absolute proposition. It has to be a specific proposition That's in line with what I was just sharing with you about the categories of judgment a moment ago. This is where thinking consistently, coherently, and logically comes in. I told you that we are judging and then we're also not to judge. Is that right? So we are constantly assessing, we are drawing lines, we are delineating, we are creating horizons because we have to have parameters, we gotta have boundaries. You can't be without judgment. It's not even possible. You, you, You can have no distinction without judgment. And that's what life is about, distinction and categories, right, and assessment. I'm going to judge you biologically, physiologically, optically, right, empirically. We're going to be doing all that. I'm going to judge you propositionally. I'm going to judge you rhetorically. I'm going to judge you emotionally, psychologically, and you with me as well. Am I making some sense? We're doing all of that fine, acute analysis and, and judgment because we're dealing with reality. Right. I'm going to put it like this. When the neo-Marxist system is accomplished in their own rights, there will be no categories of anything distinctive by which we have a right or wrong, a good or bad, a black or white, a male or female, parents or children, God and humans. It will all be eradicated into a singularity of mishmash. Did that make sense? That is a description for insanity. Y'all keeping up with me? 
You're talking about going insane when you're removing categories. You're talking about going insane when you are reversing categories, inverting categories, collapsing categories on top of each other. And remember, when, when a thing collapses, that, that's, that's a mental breakdown. Once your categories collapse and smash on top of each other where you can't distinguish them, that means you and I are in a mental crisis. That makes sense, right? That's the goal of this Marxist system. That's why you see the way they are parading at this present time, that second to the final leg of the manifestation of a queer culture. We are in transition up out of categorical, structural, hierarchical order. And we are moving into the chaos and morass of queer, which is an indistinguishable identity. Am I making some sense? Right. Essentially what that is, is a world of people who are absolutely reprobate. Absolutely reprobate where every unreal thing is made to be real because it is the plethora, okay? That's the goal here. Replicate the unreal to the point where there's more of the unreal than the real so that after a while, people assert that the unreal is the real when it's not real at all. And the only reason you buy into it as real is because you lose your categorical distinctive discernment. Right. So even if at the phenotypical level, even at the visual level, if I can't see that you are a female, a beautiful female, I can know by penetrating through what I see at the physical and understanding your chromosomal. I can understand your biological. I can understand your genetic. I can understand it all the way down to your cellular structure that you are a female or a male. That's called discernment. Did that come home? And what I did was go past the composite of your physicality. I penetrated deeper into your biological essence to constitute who you really are. That makes sense. Right. It's important then what Paul meant when he says man's judgment. I don't even judge my own self. Now, when he says that. He's not saying that he doesn't evaluate or assess. He's not saying that he doesn't come to places of conviction. He's not saying that he doesn't know the inner workings of his heart. He's not saying that he doesn't have conflict. He's not saying that. Paul is not advocating psychopathy. Paul is not advocating sociopathic behavior. So a psychopath is what a person thinks. They think in terms of no one exists but them and everything about them is subservient to them. That's a psychopath. A sociopath is an individual that takes it a step further and begins to create ruin and havoc in society as a consequence of diminishing, belittling, seen as not significant or relevant everything around them. You and I are living in a psycho-sociopathic society right now. Am I making sense? This is why you're seeing the evil abounding on the part of those communities. They're acting out in violence. Is going to increase. 
So here's what you got with them. They are pretending that they are not judging themselves. They are pretending that the only real judgment is their judgment on others. They are exporting. This is what we would call. um, um, This is what we would call compensating in in, in psycho psycho uh, terminology. When you compensate, when when the real issue is with you, but you you actually project it on other people. Right. And, and you see people do that in arguments, projecting it on other people. That's what they're doing. They're projecting it on other people. That is your Marxist conflict narrative when everything is the bougie's problem and the proletariat is good. Did that come home? This is your conflict narrative. This is your Hegel dialectical process. So rather than assessing that maybe I got some issues with me that I need to sit on the couch about. I want to conclude that all of my problems are existential and external. And therefore, if I demolish all the external things, then I will be safe. Right. Welcome to Gotham City. Welcome to the Riddler. Welcome to the Joker. Am I making some sense? This is the world I live in. It's so extremely important that you and I get this. And so when Paul says, I judge not myself, what he is not saying is that he doesn't struggle with his sin, that he doesn't struggle with choice making. He already told us that in Romans 8, the good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, I find myself doing. I know I have laws in my members that I struggle with in terms of conflict because I have a conscience and I'm not perfect. Right. So he is making assessment, which is what we do when you're alive, you make assessment. Give me five more minutes, okay? This is important for you to work through. I was talking to one of my babies today. My oldest daughter had a great time with her. We were talking about the integration of our mind and our body. And, and, and I was sharing with her that we actually been doing this at Grace for a while now, being able to understand how this body is the vehicle of expression, incarnation, for, for God's glory that resides within us in terms of our spirit, that we don't create a Gnostic dichotomy between our physicality and our spirituality, as some people might do. That faulty bifurcation will set you up for not only hypocrisy, but it will set you up for depression and anxiety as well. You will be sick if you neglect your body. Am I making some sense? Right. And, and a lot of times Christians in a kind of pseudo spiritual sense will think that it's all right to ne- neglect. That is your Marxist conflict narrative when everything is the bougie's problem and the proletariat is good. Did that come home? This is your conflict narrative. This is your Hegel dialectical process. So rather than assessing that maybe I got some issues with me that I need to sit on the couch about. I want to conclude that all of my problems are existential and external. And therefore, if I demolish all the external things, then I will be safe. Right. Welcome to Gotham City. Welcome to the Riddler. Welcome to the Joker. Am I making some sense? This is the world I live in. It's so extremely important that you and I get this. And so when Paul says, I judge not myself, what he is not saying is that he doesn't struggle with his sin, that he doesn't struggle with choice making. He already told us that in Romans 8, the good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, I find myself doing. I know I have laws in my members that I struggle with in terms of conflict because I have a conscience and I'm not perfect. Right. So he is making assessment, which is what we do when you're alive. You make assessment. 
Give me five more minutes, okay? This is important for you to work through. I was talking to one of my babies today. My oldest daughter had a great time with her. We were talking about the integration of our mind and our body. And, and, and I was sharing with her that we actually been doing this at Grace for a while now, being able to understand how this body is the vehicle of expression, incarnation for, for God's glory that resides within us in terms of our spirit, that we don't create a Gnostic dichotomy between our physicality and our spirituality as some people might do. That faulty bifurcation will set you up for not only hypocrisy, but it will set you up for depression and anxiety as well. You will be sick if you neglect your body. Am I making some sense? Right. And, and a lot of times Christians in a kind of pseudo spiritual sense will think that it's all right to ne- neglect the body because it's sinful and it's going to perish anyway. That is uh, ancient Gnosticism. How precious is the body for Christ to have assumed one and died for the one we possess? How important is the presence of the third person who occupies this weak, tattered tabernacle, fledgling in the wind as we make our way through the wilderness, but the Shekinah glory is still willing to dwell there and bear witness to his reality through this fledgling tabernacle, which he tells me to set up and put down and set up and put down every day so that an opportunity for men and women to be drawn to him by that paradox of a burning bush in my life. Did that make some sense? Right. And so when we play games with our head around neglect of our body, We're setting ourselves up for a diminishing of the purpose for which we exist and the fullness of the expression of the witness of God in our life to others. When we intentionally neglect our body, did you hear what I just stated? I was, uh, I said I wasn't going to do it, so I shouldn't. But my wife found two hills to hike in Antigua. (laughs) And of course, you know, I'm there for that. The second one was called the Hill of Obama. This is a hill that this is a hill that Antigua dedicated to President Obama in hopes that he would come and honor that dedication. Because in our poorer countries, a big portion of their income is by tourism. This is one of the highest mountains. In fact, this is the highest mountain in Antigua. So we we, were, we wanted to hike it because there ain't nothing else to do when you're hanging out with Miss B, but find the highest mountain to climb, okay? <laughs> and they said, you sure you guys want to climb this mountain? This mountain gets so steep that your face is looking at the ground and your hands are crawling to get to the top. Um, I didn't believe it because I said, you know, black folks lie all the time anyway, so I don't actually, I don't believe it. Everybody lies. White folk lie. If y'all don't know, they do. Black folk lie. We exaggerate, don't we? So I said, hey, let's go on knock. Girl, let's knock this thing out. You know me and you. We can knock this out. And, uh, well, they weren't lying. 
30 minutes up into the hike with our guide, he says, now, you're, this is the point where it gets tough for 30 minutes. Most people don't make it. And so we we're walking up an incline that is so steep that every step was reminding me of how important the body is. Right, because just imagine if you do any, any climbing of hills, you're fighting against gravity every step. And we couldn't stop because we had a goal of breaking records. Not, it's not just have a good time and go to the top, break the record. That's, that's Miss B. That's having a good time for Miss B. The last thing you're going to do is stop. Say, can, we, can I stop for a second and get some air? No, no stopping, which we didn't do. And I was super happy about it because I don't, I, I don't personally, you know, like I don't wake up every day trying to find the highest mountain to climb on the, on the planet. I really don't. But I am thankful for being healthy and being able to do these kinds of things and to be able to witness to a young Jamaican brother who happens to be in Antigua about Christ because that's what you do when it's just you, your wife, and him because don't nobody else want to climb the mountain. Uh, and, and we're going to be together for two hours. So as we're walking through a beautiful paradisial garden-like hill because the whole island is just rich with natural resources. We're hiking and I'm talking to him about who I am and who Barb is and how we're, you know, pastor of uh, a local church. And then I told him how old I was and he couldn't believe it. And I, I only, I'm saying this to say one thing that um, when, I, when we came down from the hill, it was treacherous enough that um, my Achilles swole on, on my left side. Right, that was a treacherous hill. But I'm doing fine now. But you notice the moment that you undergo an affliction, how you immediately become conscious of the importance of your body. Do you notice that? Do you notice that? Immediately I said, whoa, thank you, Lord for health and strength, for being able to hike that hill. I'm sore, but I was able to do it. And now I'm recovering. Like I was really bad two days ago, recovering. That's called health. That's called health. That's taking care of yourself. Did that make some sense? Right. So I'm glad to be back home. I'm glad to be teaching and preaching. I'm glad to be off of Obama's hill. I'm definitely glad to be off of I said to myself, now what if Barb says, you know what, let's go back out the next day. I probably wouldn't have went, you know. I'm saying that to say to you and I about how important it is to assess rightly and properly and not to avoid and neglect so as to live in a walking contradiction in yourself, a contradiction that is both hurting yourself and not helping others because you're hurt. Did that make some sense? Right, so this is where I want to stop and and then I'm going to pick up on Tuesday to go deeper into the text. I say that to say with Paul when he says, I judge not my own self, it is not at all that he is saying that he is not aware of his body, his aware of his health, aware of the way he thinks. He plainly does. You know enough about the Bible. He says, I buffet my body. I keep it in subjection that I might do the will of God. And that's a good 
That's a good um, lesson for us as well, is it not, to, to be able to do that. So I, I keep that in mind. So now what I want to do is open the mic, if I can get a couple runners, and we'll, we'll just take up the subject of what is the benefit of the apostle's prism of thinking, his perspective? What kind of application does it make for you? How did you benefit from the study so far? We got to drill down and come up out of the deep water next week. But how did it benefit you this time around? Are, are, are there complications that we need to work through? Anybody who has the mic? Any, anybody? No one? Uh, my, my friend right here, right here. Thank you. Uh, cut the mic on for him and give us your name, sir. You can oh, get my it. My name is Wayne. 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 Uh-huh. Okay, that's beautiful. Wayne, I'll need you to put the mic closer as you speak. Uh, is your question or observation? Be glad to hear from you. Okay, reading from, from Luke 4, 14, mm-hmm. and your comments earlier that how blessed were the people that heard Jesus preach. Um, and he was admired, he was praised, people were, were amazed by him. But in this... In this uh, chapter, if we read further on, there was a question that seems to be a loaded question. Isn't this Joseph's son? And then when Jesus began speaking more and bringing up Elijah twice, he was no longer admired, he was no longer praised, but the crowd turned on him. What happened? Is that, a, is that a question you're asking? What's your name again? Uh, Wayne. Wayne, it's good to have you in the house. Is that a question you're asking um, that you want me to unpack in the, in the kind of sincerity of how cultures can change with the wind? Or, or do you know what the real answer is there? Well, the, re- the reason I asked it is because, because Jesus was, was, people were amazed at him. When he went into the synagogue and he wrote, he read, read the law. He brought new insights into it yes. that people did not hear from the scribes and the Pharisees. Yes. So uh, I wanted to just to hear your comments. What happened that turned the people for him suddenly against him in this passage? I love it. Uh, thank you, Wayne. Let me uh, unpack that. D- did we get the mics around so far? Because we want to keep going. Give us about 15 minutes to just unpack. This is a very... <clears throat> interesting portion of scripture because this is the first recorded sermon of Jesus in his own hometown. So the first principle that comes out of this is a prophet is not honored in his own country. That's number one. And is not honored in his own country in this context because the role of the prophet is to speak in the behalf of God, not in the behalf of the people. That's number two. Number two meaning that what they wanted from Jesus, in addition to lauding his eloquence of developing that text, was for him to do something for them. They wanted him to be a tool for their benefit. They wanted him to be um, a, a means by which they could be the center of attention. But if you notice what the text did, Jesus goes on in that text to talk about how God did not come to anyone but a Gentile woman, a woman of Zarephath at that time, um, to save her while Israel was perishing in a famine. 
That was the beginning of the controversy with Jesus and those people in that text. If you look at it, you were looking over at verse, um, right, I'm over at verse 24. This is what's going on. Uh, verse 22, and all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, you will surely say unto me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What is Jesus doing? He's prophesying that they're going to turn on him and kill him. They're going to reject him as the great physician. And then when he's under the curse of the law, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. They're going to be saying to him, now heal yourself. In other words, the ridicule of the prophecy of Psalm 22 and others that they would turn against him who, for who he really is claiming to be Messiah, they will reject that claim and they will bitterly turn. Now, Jesus is engaging them at a theological level. Watch this, ladies and gentlemen, just to add to the point. Remember what I said in verse 24, he says, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country, right? Now Jesus is being prophetic and the prophets always spoke in the behalf of God more frequently against the behavior of the people. Da-da, the people are coming to church, but they're not coming to church for God. For had they been coming to church for God, they would have seen Jesus for who he was and loved him through this qualifying statement that hinged on their false assessment. Is this not Joseph's son? What were they doing? They were equivocating. They were seeing Jesus operate in the power of the spirit to develop the scriptures fully and influentially. But what did they do? They rejected what they saw in terms of the fulfillment of Messiah to come and simply saw Jesus as the son of Mary and Joseph. They diminished him. They lowered him. They set themselves up not to believe. And so what Jesus did in that moment was simply say, hey, you are fulfilling the scriptures as you Jews have always done. When God came through any of his prophets, they always rejected the prophets. This is why he went on to say, but I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias when the heavens were shut up for three and a half years with great fam- when great famine was throughout the land, but unto none was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city in Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And again, many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elias the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, say, uh, saving Naaman the Syrian. What was Jesus saying? God didn't heal any of the Jews because they were living in rebellion and disobedience to him. He healed a Gentile woman and a Syrian leper. And what he was doing was setting up the fact that that Jesus was coming in the same conditions were there uh, in that situation right there. They were rejecting the fact that he was affirming himself to be Messiah. And this is why they turned on him and they would have taken him and thrown him over the cliff. As you know, your Bible says, but that's a bad when, when the sermon turns into a day where the people want to kill you. That's a bad day. What they hated was the doctrine of election. What Jesus was teaching in that text, God saves whom he wants and he overlooks whom he wants. And Israel thought that they were the apple of God's eye. 
and God saved and healed a leper and never healed any of the Jewish lepers. God saved a Gentile woman in that famine and many other of the widows perished. That was a hard saying. But that becomes the truth. The Jews rejected Christ, but the Gentiles received him. See what I'm getting at? Uh, thank you for that observation. Any, any, uh, okay, go ahead on, Lisa. Um, thanks. Welcome back, Jesse. Yeah. We missed you, but the people who filled your shoes did a fantastic job. Absolutely. So, thank you. I got Very a good edifying. Team. Amen. Um, so I'm wrapping my head around this because Donna has been saying to me, which has been good, it's not about you. It's not about you. And I used to get really angry about it because I'm like, what do you mean it's not about me? Like, I'm trying to be saved. I'm trying to, like, not be bad and, you know, be judgmental and all that lousy stuff that goes along with being disobedient and rebellious. Yeah. And this tied it t- together in, in a way that I'm hoping that you can kind of connect. I always have, like, that thing that I, I like, have some kind of a, I don't know, learning disability. <laughs> um, so... So we are who we are, and then who you are, and then and who Christ is. So when we know who we are, um, we have humility, and then we realize it's not about us. So we're not egocentric, mm-hmm. um, like what's happening right now with the Marxism, because it's all about the individual yep. and the collective. Yep. And then... Um, when you are, when, when, when you know who you are, then you stop being judgmental, like what, what Paul did. He said, you don't even judge yourself. So when you stop judging yourself, because you're one of God's people, yeah. and when you judge other people, you're being ungodlike. Mm-hmm. And it's the same when you judge yourself. You're mm-hmm. being the same thing because we are a creation of God. And if we do that, it's lousy and there's no, then we have the reprobate mind. And then there's no coming back from kind of a judgment. And then when we're in Christ, he judges us and he judges everyone else. So it's really not about us. It's about our actions and being kind and not kind, loving towards everyone. And then, but how do you not? like love yourself and be like conceited. Right. If I follow that line. Right. So let me tie the knots. What I want you to do with what we're dealing with, the struggle is important. This is why I talk about tensions and paradoxes and dichotomies, because it's not about you, but apparently it is. (laughs) And you have to know that. Right. You have to know that you have to know how to hold those intention. You have to know not to distort. We do that in church a lot. And grace has done this to its own detriment. Frequently, we'll say it's not about us. I'm not doing it. God's doing it all. And that's a lie. That's actually a lie. And scripture will contradict you when you talk like that. Because you're not holding both and together. You are emphasizing one side to the negation of the other when what God wants to do is demonstrate how he works in and through us, not apart from us. I've been teaching that for years. You can't properly read and teach your Bible and, and assert that you're not doing anything, that you are nothing and God is all. 
That's not even the that's not even that's not even incarnational theology. Incarnational theology is the integration of the divine and the human. And the divine and the human being summed up in the person of Christ is the what I've called before the central organizing principle by which I have my essence and meaning and significance. So if I don't have essence, meaning and significance, there's a sense in which Christ does it. I know that hurts. It's absolutely true. It's the inseparable correlation between the greater and the lesser. It's the inseparable correlation between the father and the son. Like, if the father didn't have a son, then the father wouldn't be the father. There's no possible way to be a father without a son. And yet, when I say that the father wouldn't be the father if he doesn't have a son, I'm not making the son the father. And neither am I making myself Christ, and neither should you. But when we are talking about the mystery of godliness... God manifest in the flesh. We're not only talking about that mystery summed up, summed up in the person of Christ, uh, distinguishable from us. We're talking about summed up in the person of Christ, fulfilled through us, fulfilled through us in such a way that when Paul was persecuting the church in Acts 9, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Did that come home? Right. So it's important to remember that if we're going to deal with what are called antinomies, two laws, a law over here that speaks to the uniqueness and distinction of God all by himself. This is what we call his incommunicable attributes. And then a law over here, which speaks to humanity being created in the Imago Dei and therefore possessing the communicable attributes of God. Those are two sets of laws, are they not? One set of laws is exclusive to God. The other set of laws are shared with us from God, which brings us in the relationship where we can call God our father and we are his children. If God had no children, he couldn't be a father. That's just a logical syllogistic principle. It comes home. It shows the importance and dignity of the people of God. And what that also means, therefore, is like we're going to find out next week. If if it wasn't in some way about us in Christ, there would be no day of celebration and reward that God himself will give to his people for loving him and serving him. Pull up verse five. I want you to see it because we're going to come back and unpack this. I've taught this for a long time and a lot of people don't like it. I don't care because one of, one of the things that I've discovered is that when God says what he says in his Bible, it doesn't have to make sense to me right away. It's right because God said it. So I want you to look at what this says. Notice what it says. Therefore, judge nothing before the time. We'll unpack that until the Lord comes. What does that mean? He's going to be the one giving the final impeccable, flawless judgment. So we're making a dichotomy between temporal judgments that occur in our practical life every day, which I said we do. And the final judgment of impeccable, flawless assessment by the one who exclusively has a right to bring all human beings before the Bema. Remember, he's going to find everybody out. 
So we're going to be dealing with both of those. Does that make sense? So what Paul is saying is let Jesus be the one finding everybody out. Not only should you and I not be trying to find everybody out, we can't find everybody out. This is going to get back to your proposition. You can't even find yourself out. So what Paul is saying is, because I can't find myself out, I'm not judging myself to that extent. And here's the reason why, to keep it very simple. I would be wrong. I would be wrong to judge myself thinking I can draw a conclusion about myself comprehensively. I cannot. Neither can you. Did that make some sense? Search me, O Lord, and try me. You do it and see if there be any wicked way in me and then remove it far from me. So that's the Lord coming and bringing to light the hidden things of darkness. I'm not doing that. The Lord is doing that. So we're going to talk about how that works out in the practical everyday life of the Christian. Where's my freedom? My freedom is in me knowing that I don't have the sufficient capacity for self-assessment at that level. I can actually condemn myself when God's not condemning me. Am I helping you? Right, because this is where our sister is going. So (laughs) this carousel that we often make in our conversation puts us in these kind of uh, merry-go-round circles that often seems like we're contradicting ourselves. No, it's prioritizing and categorizing the judgment. So we prioritize the fact that God has graced us to be able to trust him in his judgment of us. How liberating. Keep growing in that. You keep growing in that. Keep growing in that because if you keep growing in trusting the Lord, that's what Paul says, right? The Lord is my judge. What it's indicating is you're fully persuaded that you're absolutely fallible in self-judgment. I'll just leave it to the Lord, which has a ton of implications that are absolutely wonderful. Is he your Lord? Did he save you to kill you? See what I'm getting at? And I could just draw so many benefits of him being my Lord that it just makes all kind of sense in the world that I'm going to give him the, the right to judge me. Right? But now he's already told me to behave. So I do want to behave. I want to love people. You know, and he's already made provision when I don't because I don't. And he brought that into the equation, too, which is a beautiful thing. Right. You guys know forgiveness and mercy is a mechanism by which we keep it. What? Keep it. What? Isn't he good? And he's going with us when we move. So he said, you messed up. Clean it up. Keep it moving. It's a beautiful thing to free you up from condemning yourself, which you would do if you're arrogant enough to be so narcissistically assuming that you know how bad you are. You don't. You are a gazillion times worse than you know. (laughs) And and we need to, you know, I shouldn't stay on this. We need to be careful. We need to be careful because in Calvinistic camps, You can pride yourself in your sinfulness. I hear it a lot. And it's an actually, it's an overestimation that is actually a distortion of reality. 
Did that come home? We want to strike that balance. That's what gives God delight. Who else? Okay, Bo. Okay, go to Bo. Yeah. Um, uh, what our visitor Wayne had brought up, uh, everything that you said in answer to that is, is very good. I just want to add a caveat and a climax to that context that really triggered or excelled their fire to try to destroy Christ. It was, um, for one, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Amen. We know that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And they couldn't, the, the friction was they could not deny that the spirit of the Lord was upon him. And with everything that you said, Jess, it was a fulfillment of what the Lord said in Deuteronomy 32, 21. And I can read that real quickly. Yeah, definitely. Um, they, they have moved me to jealousy with that with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities. Notice the jealousy, notice the anger. And I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. And that's exactly what he said that he did in doing that when he healed Naaman and uh, fed uh, the widow. He knew in the spirit that when his son would come, who came for the chastisement and the cleansing and the salvation for his people, that that was also a part of that prophecy. That brought in also the vengeance of the Lord and also um, uh, the spirit, you know, to comfort those which mourn. That, that, that was the, the climax of why they were just enraged because prophecy was fulfilled. And um, it, it answered that they weren't the apple of their eye in and of themselves. I agree. I totally agree. So um, the application of Deuteronomy 32 is, is well situated for the Luke account, just like you said. I'm, I'm only circling back and affirming you. I totally agree. Uh, that's a great way to, to sum that up. So I hope that helps too, Wayne. It's the, it's the paradox of he, he came unto his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, right? And that's, that's us who have no right to be his sons and daughters, but by faith and through grace, it is the case. Whether Jew or Gentile, it's always by faith through grace. Anybody else before we shut it down? Uh, Brother Warren. I think I'm, I'm hearing this right, but correct me if I'm wrong, please. Um, has, to me, I thought of having an assumption and making no, it... No, re restate that, that last part. Having an, an assumption okay, of something. Okay, got it. Yes, And yes. hearing something contrary to that, making a snap judgment to where you condemn what you hear only to find out later that you were wrong. You become self-righteous almost in the original uh, judgment, if you will. Yes. Um, I don't know how you deal with that. It's, it's easy to, to become wrapped up in, in self and think you have it right. And then when you find out that you don't have it right, 
You don't know where to turn. You're kind of rudderless. Right. Very good. Very good. He's still in the orbit of our topic. He's in the orbit of our topic because our topic is about how to properly assess without drawing a conclusion that presupposes you actually know when there's a great possibility that you don't. So what Paul is doing in our text, using himself and Apollos as an example of what the Corinthians shouldn't do. They should not judge him because they're making assertions that they don't qualify because they haven't fully assessed all that he is. Notice what Paul is doing. Paul is actually coming to them to give them more data about himself so that they can make a proper assessment about who he is and who he is for them, which means he's hearing of them condemning him and judging him before he gets to answer for himself. And Torah has laid that out. You don't get to condemn anybody before hearing them out. He that speaks before he heareth the whole matter, it is folly and shame, right? So I'm sure I'm building a case for human fallibility at the level of being presumptuous and fickle enough to make an assessment that's wrong when one, they don't have enough data to make the proper assessment. Two, they have a fundamental flaw in their nature, which is a knee-jerk reaction to condemn because they have been persuaded by other pejorative voices that have turned them against Paul, which in the case of the Luke text that our brother Wayne in Lamont has brought back up, you can look at that happening in the Luke text. In the Luke text, Christ is the center of discourse, properly executing his role And the people had an opportunity right then and there to see it for what it was, but they judged too quickly. And in judging too quickly, they discovered that they were wrong and that wrong turned into anger. And rather than humbling themselves, because all Jesus did was unpack the scriptures. They wanted to actually get rid of Jesus. So this gets back to how we will double down when we are presumptuous and do something wrong. And rather than simply saying, I was wrong. That's hard to do when you're proud. Isn't that hard to do? Can you imagine how difficult the words, I was Right? When you're proud. Um, Now, why is that? So let's close out with these thoughts because the, the title of our study is The Humble Servants of Christ. Humility before honor. Right? And this is, Paul's a perfect example of how to navigate opposition against him for who he is in Christ and successfully overcome it. So when Jesus said in the, uh, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, you know, uh, when you are persecuted, don't revile back. Don't do the quid pro quo thing. Then what he's saying to you and me is don't fall prey to an emotional response to an assessment or it's misjudgment coming back on you causing you to double down again with another wrong emotional response, which would be the pride of anger at yourself 
as if somehow you can't be wrong, right? Um, and what's underneath that kind of negative feedback dynamic is pride. And it's the pride of um, the absence of the humility that says I am in a constant state of learning, right? So if I'm in a constant state of learning, then I must know that I don't know as I ought to know. And if that's the case, I'm going to be going through the repeated uh, reality of having misjudged or misassessed or got it wrong. And, and the key in that dynamic, the key in that process is simply having the humility to be flexible enough to embrace the correction so as to quickly heal and rebound. And, and you have that freedom to do that because of the resources that are given to you in Christ. He that confesses and forsakes his sins shall have mercy. You have that freedom. Secondly, you also know that every mistake that you ever make is paid for, right? And this is not to be arrogant or presumptuous or sociopathic or harmful. It is to be humble enough to know that you are working for a master who knows you are flawed. And he knows you are flawed better than anybody else, including yourself. This is where Paul is going to help us understand, and I love the way he puts it. He says, I don't know anything by myself. That's what he says in the next verse. What he means is I can't stand alone, make a judgment of myself and know that I know without God actually accompanying me and giving me the insight and depth of comprehending fully what I am considering. Does that make some sense? Right, because when God helps you with that, you can hit bottom. You can, you can come to the ground of that subject matter. You can come to the end of that subject matter when God helps you. When God doesn't help you, you don't know where the end of that is. And the best position to be in is a position of humility because you and I are not Gnostics. Our salvation is not based on us knowing everything. That, that's the condemnation of the Gnostic. For you and I, we are believers. Faith is the space in between the promise and the reality. Did that come home? So when a promise is given, I get to embrace it by faith, not by knowledge, by faith until that promise emerges as real. And then I get to know it. This is why the Bible is saying the totality of our walk with God is one of faith. Then it will be by sight for I will know him because I will see him as he is because I will be like him. Right. So in between now and then I am living on the absolute virtue and integrity of faith. And, and, and we mess it up. We surely do. We, 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 um, we, we, we often trade faith for knowing. And then we turn knowing into certainty. When knowing has to be understood on our part as in part and obscure. It has to be. And yet even that knowing that is in part and obscure, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, is potent enough for God to use to grant light for us to make our way to glory. Did that make some sense? Like we don't need to have 
the effulgence of unfiltered light because God's truth is so absolutely powerful enough to guide us through the fog and guide us through the smog and guide us through the obscurity. It still can and it still does, does it not? We are all walking by a faith that does not require us knowing everything about everything. Right, so extremely important. You'll be all right, Warren. Keep your hand in the hand of our Savior. Warren is talking about deep things of the old man, is he not? Patterns that are carved out in our soul from children. Levels of brokenness that remain present and show up in our personality in situations sometimes very frequently for which we can be exacerbated if we don't remember that we're on a journey and that we will always be until we arrive simultaneously righteous and sinful, right? And the quality that's able to embrace that reality that I am righteous and sinful is humility. What a powerful gift humility is. Humility will keep you from being taken out by the pride of others or the pride of yourself. That's what Paul is saying. I'm a doulos. I'm a hooperates. I am a diaconate. He didn't say he was an apostle, although he was. See what I'm getting at? He could sweep, he could clean, he could make tents, he could cook, and yet he was an apostle. That's how he would negotiate being put in prison in Caesar's household and then ultimately killed. This is what we're going to unpack. You know what he's saying? I don't know me like my master knows me, but I know my master. And that's all that matters is that I'll be found faithful unto him. No other questions, right? Okay, go on. So um, why does it seem like God's chosen always get away with something? I didn't get that. Reframe that. Like, um, why, do, why do the ones that seem like they got away with something were God's chosen? Give me an example. Like David, he he was sleeping with a bunch of women. God chose him to. Actually not. David is not the one. Um, David wasn't sleeping with a bunch of women. He married those women. Bathsheba, remember? He had... uh, he had Uriah killed. Killed to see. He didn't get away at all. Two things. His house was ruined for that act. His whole house. The actually chosen ones. Nothing happened to them. No. Yeah, no. He didn't get away with anything. So I'll, I'll help you there and I'll close here because it's important for you to know. To frame it that way is to embrace 
um, psychopathy or being sociopathic or psychopathic. Right. And so Christians do this from not working through the sinfulness of other Christians thoroughly. So no Christian gets away with anything. So I'm going to develop this and then I'm going to close this in prayer. No time do we sin against God. You can take that mic too. And God doesn't call us on it. And that there's not a trade-off. There's always a trade-off. So, David was a remarkable servant of God. He occupied a position called the monarchy, which very few men can do well. And so, David was in a tension between uh, a monogamous principle of the twain becoming one flesh and living together until we die, which was never done by virtually any of the patriarchs. After the flood of Noah, almost none of our patriarchal fathers had only one wife. Most of them were polygamous. Do you understand that? Abraham, without the, with the exception of Isaac, Jacob, the, the 12 boys. They lived in a culture of polygamous uh, conventionality. The conventional wisdom was that a man possessing so much wealth and material uh, and goods could actually benefit two wives or three wives or four wives. At the practical level, that was true. At the practical level, that was true. That's why it was done. Most of the time, the wives were in order to increase the sons for the king so that the king wouldn't be taken out and the kingdom taken so easily because he never had a man-child to replace him. Are you guys listening to me? This is why I said in our marriage series, marriage is not about love. Love is a secondary quality in relationship to marriage, and it was never, ever the fundamental or first, and people still don't get it. Marriages were all about property. They were all about stability. They were all about maintenance of the prodigy. That's what marriage was about. It was about protecting the seed, male and female, so that they could grow up and replicate too. And so it had much more of a economic and a much more practical component to it than this hyper-emotional, romantic love that we have infused into the process of marriage. Are you hearing me? Because if you don't hear me, you won't actually be able to see your Bible like you should. Because we will be using a faulty lens when we read the Bible. So even, G- even Adam's marriage was an arranged marriage, I'm sorry to say with conditions already prerequisite by God. So what David had done was enjoyed the benefits of a cultural normalcy by picking up a wife here and picking up a wife there and picking up a wife here, which would have expanded his seed for sons 
to actually um, attain the throne because kings were in wars all the time and the goal was to kill the king, take the kingdom. Did that make some sense? This is your chess game. Chess. This is your chess game. And so when you understand that, understand that what David did was wrong in killing, Bath, uh, killing Uriah for Bathsheba. And God told him, your whole house is going to be wiped out now. And so Amnon and all the other boys were doing hideous things, including incest, including sleeping with David's wives. David's house was your 21st central scandal. He might, you know, it's like the Clintons or, you know, whoever else, I don't even know. Um, the Kennedys. Um, he was a child of God. He hated every bit of it. Psalm 32, Psalm 51. And, and 70% of the Psalms that David wrote were Psalms of depression. Did you get what I just stated? Psalms of depression. So David came into that esteemed position as a broken child who once he, you know, obtained all that wealth and riches, you know, seven wives, 13 concubines. That was normal for a king. Now, had he said Solomon, he'd have had a better argument. He just forgot Solomon. 700 wives, right? 300 concubines, 1,000 women. And I told you, most of that was business. Most of that wasn't, that wasn't because he had this massive libido. He didn't. It was business. But he too was broken like his dad. There's no way he would have been happy. Ecclesiastes is called the confessions of a king. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. I sought to know women, wine, and folly, and I discovered it was nothing. Here's the conclusion that I've learned. Fear God, keep his commandments, because God will bring every secret thing into judgment, whether it be good or bad. So he repented because it didn't do him any good. See what I'm getting at? We don't get away. And that sin was paid for by the blood of Christ, too. Right? It was prayed for. He, he would tell you, don't, don't go down that path. So the way we frame it is to not ever think that we get away because we don't. We don't. All right, we're going to be at it with our men tomorrow. We will need you to pray for us. Guys, if y'all are listening, we got to be here early so we can set up and cook breakfast and take care of our men and have a, a wonderful meeting. I think our doors will be open at 730. So I just want you to know, for those of you guys that are watching, we will also need you. We got food, but we need our guys to show up for preparing and serving and cooking and all that um, for tomorrow. And then Sunday is baptism. So y'all keep that in prayer because we got a good crew that appears to be coming out there. Stand with me in prayer so we can close and uh, dismiss. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you for all those who are out tonight. Thank you for the questions. Great questions. Help us to go deeper with you. Think more broadly, accurately. 
and effectively change our hearts and minds. Help us to be more like our master and our savior and like his servants. Lord, help us to embrace humility because it really is a perfect uh, adornment for your goodness and your glory in our life. As we go our way, give us traveling mercies, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. God bless you. All right.